You are listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. To learn more about Central Sanford, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. Matthew chapter 6 is where we are this morning, Matthew 6, and we're going to begin in verse number 9. This is the Lord's Prayer, and let's stand as we read God's Word, Matthew chapter 6, verse number 9 through 13, page 811. Those that are watching online, we are so honored that you also joined us online. Let's all read this together. Pray then like this, all together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but as a believer, one of the hardest things is to pray. It just is. You say, Pastor, it's not very hard for me. Well, maybe not if you do like a minute prayer, but if you ever try to do a sweet hour of prayer... It's hard. It's hard. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a pastor uh, who has passed away, but he's from England, said this about prayer. He says that there is nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. Everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. Now, you say, well, pastor, I don't know about that. Well, in my own life, it is. It is easier to read than it is to pray for for me as a pastor. It's easier for me to lead a Bible study for an hour than it is to pray for an hour. It is easier for me to write a sermon than it is for me to pray about a sermon on prayer. It is easier for me to preach a sermon about prayer than to pray over that sermon about prayer. Exercise is easier for me than prayer. Giving my money is easier for me than prayer. Singing worship songs, uh, attending different events is easier to me than prayer. Coming to church is easier than prayer. Prayer is hard. It can be frustrating. Can I get a witness? And it can be humiliating. And I think the reason why I have in, in my life struggled, and maybe the reason why you in your life are struggling in the area of prayer, is you don't know how to pray. Who has taught you how to pray? Most people have not had anyone specifically, intentionally teach them how to pray. And because of this, prayer is a chore rather than a choice. It's a, a duty rather than a delight. And, and what I found in my life, that whenever I feel a lot of pressure to do something, I want to neglect it. So Jesus wants to teach you and I how to pray. And the Lord's Prayer is Jesus' answer, how do you pray? The Lord's Prayer, I think, is probably the the most spoken words, especially in in the English language, but I would say around the world, there's probably been no more set of words that have been spoken more or prayed more than the Lord's Prayer. It's extremely well known. Probably many of you, you may not know very many Bible verses, but you probably, for the most part, can get the Lord's Prayer. The other day I was watching a, a, a uh, something on Twitter that it was in a locker room and the coach and the team, they just had won a championship and they were just going crazy. They were having a big party and they were cussing and, and just saying all kinds of explicitives. And then the next thing you know, the, co- the coach gets up and he just starts saying this and that and the other and it wasn't anything I can say in the pulpit. And then he said, all right, everybody, let's take a knee. Let's say the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> 
It's something that a lot of people know. Al Mohler on the Lord's Prayer said this. He says, the Lord's Prayer takes less than 20 seconds to read aloud, but it takes a lifetime to learn. I personally have prayed, especially this past year, it's been the prayer, my daily prayer, uh, at least a thousand times in my life, but even more so lately, every time I pray this prayer, I learn something more about it. And I think that the reason why this prayer can be both hard, but but also very uh, encouraging is because every single phrase in the Lord's Prayer is drawing from a wealth of biblical teaching. Tim Keller says that virtually the entire Bible is in the Lord's Prayer, compressed and turned into adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So a lot of you maybe have prayed the Lord's Prayer, but you don't really understand what all the Lord is getting at when He's teaching us, and it's not really been as powerful in your life as maybe it should be, and I think it's because we don't necessarily understand what God is saying in these simple words, and so the series that we've got going on is we're going to go each phrase unlocking and seeing what did Jesus mean and what is the biblical truth behind this. And this morning, we're just going to begin with the phrase, our Father in heaven. And here's what I want you, it's a big picture, it won't be on the screen, it's a big picture. What will keep prayer from being a duty is seeing that God is your daddy. What will keep prayer from feeling like a duty is seeing that God is your daddy. Two things. Number one, our father. We have a personal relationship with God. He says in verse number nine, pray like this. Jesus, who is both fully God and fully man and truly man, is the only one who is qualified to teach us how to pray. And so he gives us being God But also, man, he gives us God's perspective on prayer. Jesus himself had a perfect prayer life. He lived a perfect, obedient life. He, uh, he, every prayer he prayed, uh, he prayed uh, in the will of God, and he had a perfect prayer life. So the question is, how do you start? You know, some people, maybe you're brand new to Christianity. Maybe you're just brand new to religion whatsoever. You're like, well, how do I pray? And and I've had some people, it's really funny. I've had some people that are maybe new believers and and you hear them pray out loud and they don't really know what to say. And how many of you, and don't raise your hand, is it maybe you're struggling with that? I've had some people say, well, should I say, dear God? Like we're writing God a letter? Or should we start, dear Jesus? And some of you may start, dear Jesus. Should we start holy, righteous, almighty? Should we say the big man upstairs? Dear big man upstairs. Well, Jesus here gives us how we are to address God, our Father. Now, let's look at that real quick. Our. We, we don't really think too much about this, uh, this personal possessive pronoun here. But as you read through the Lord's Prayer, the one thing that struck me this week is this, is that there are no singular personal pronouns in this entire prayer. It, there are no words, pronouns, such as I, my, or me. The only words that are used are plural possessive pronouns, plural personal pronouns like are and us. Think about that. It doesn't say my father. It says our father. Now, as we think about that, what does it mean? Here's what it means. That prayer is not just by ourselves for ourselves. That we have a relationship with God, but it's also with other people. If you are a Christian, you were saved by Christ, but you're saved into his body, the church. So we have a corporate identity. So when we pray our Father, it's not just about me and God. And you say, well, Pastor, why is that important? It's important for this reason. We live in a day of radical individualism, where everything in the world is about me. Therefore, our worship, 
our prayer life, our walk with God is just me and God. As Francis Chan said, it is blackjack Christianity. It's just me and the dealer. I don't worry about anybody around me. I just worry about me and God. And and as as long as me and Jesus have got a good thing going, that's all that matters. But God saved us, and he put us into a community, into a family. And those that are around you that are brothers and sisters, they are your family. God does not want you to do the Christian life alone. Christianity is not an individual sport. It is a team sport. And so as we pray to God, we are praying not to my father, but he's our father. He's not just mine. He's yours if you are his. So he says, our father. We are all in this sucker together. But not only does he say our father, but he says our father. Yes, I said the same word twice. (laughs) Jesus says, you are to address him as father. Now, he's not the first one in the history of the Bible to introduce God as father. God is actually called father 15 times in the Old Testament. Most all of those, if not all of those, are referencing God's relationship with the nation of Israel, 15 times. So it's not a new concept. The the people of Israel, thinking through a corporate identity, saw God as their father. But in the New Testament, God is called father over 250 times. And Jesus himself calls him Father 170 times. So almost every Christian that I know that prays typically has somewhere within that prayer the word Father. Christian prayer is fundamentally different than all other religions because of that one thing. In a mosque, they don't call God Allah Father. In a a Buddhist temple, they don't call the Buddha Father. Father. In the Hindu religion, they don't call their gods and goddesses father or mother. We call him father. Now, why is that important? I mean, you think about this. We, when we think of the word father, we think either of our earthly fathers. We, we get this concept in our minds. And for us, the, the closest relationship possible that you can have with God is that he's your father. Now, if you were to describe God in one word, how would you describe him? Maybe some of you would describe him as being creator or holy or almighty or king or savior or Lord. Well, Jesus says that when you think of God, he is all of those things, but he's your father. And here's the reason why. is because for all eternity, God the Father has always been a father. In the Godhead, and you say, well, there's a lot of mystery to that. In the Father, God is always, uh, in the Trinity, God has always been the father and Jesus has always been the son in that relationship. There's always been God the Father, always been God the Son, always been God the Holy Spirit. So for all eternity, God has always been Father, but He's not always been Creator. He's not always been Savior, but He's always been Father. So the question you may have is this, who has the right to call Him Father? You know, there's a lot of people that that ask this question, is everybody a child of God? Is there a universal fatherhood of God and a universal brotherhood of man? Is God the father of everybody? And I will say, in a sense, since God is everyone's creator, he is, in a sense, their father. But, but not necessarily how, how we call him father, because not everybody has a personal relationship with him. And I will, I'll kind of give it to this in an illustration. Have, have you ever heard somebody say, or maybe you said this to yourself, to maybe to, to your father, you know, you were never a father to me. You were maybe... Uh, my biological uh, father, but, but you've never been a personal father. 
I don't have a relationship with you. There's never been a father-child relationship. You know, you never loved me. You never cared for me. See, I want you to understand what what, what Jesus here is is not teaching. He's not teaching that everybody under the sun has a personal relationship with God as Father. We are not children of God by virtue of creation. We are children of God by virtue of adoption. See, all human beings by virtue are born in a sinful, broken world, and we're not all children of God. As a matter of fact, we are children of wrath, slaves to sin, and slaves to the fear of death. A true father-child relationship with God only comes through Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who inherently has the right to call God Father. And he came into this world to make you and I, those who were once God's enemies, his children. So we call God Father based on the relationship that Jesus Christ himself enacted, affected, and achieved on the cross. So let me give you a passage of scripture to think through this. There are many that we can choose from, but let's look at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4 verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. No longer a slave, but a son. Those of you that are in Christ Jesus, you're no longer slaves. That is who you used to be. You are now a son. Now, the question is this. Many, some scholars take this passage and they want to change the gender. We want to make it gender neutral so that rather that we, it would say that you're no longer a slave, but you are a child. But Paul was very intentional in the use of using the word son because his concept here, he's speaking to all believers, both men and women, but his concept here is very important because in the Greco-Roman world, adoption, which is now and also then, was a legal institution. And in that world, adoption happened typically when there was a wealthy man, a huge landowner who had a huge estate, but he had no son. He had no heir. So what he would do, because he wanted the estate to continue, is he would adopt someone to be his heir. Typically, it was a slave in the house. And he would adopt this, and it would always be a male. Women were never adopted. And he would be the heir, and the son would be his son forever. And when this, when this man died, his estate would go completely to the son. So what Paul is saying here is this, is that he is taking this legal institution that only men participated in, and he shows us and he turns it into how God adopts us into the family and applies it to all believers. So it's important because if it just said children, it wouldn't have the same weight. We are adopted as sons, and as sons, I'm going to talk to you about this in a moment, we are heirs of God. So here's what he says before this in Galatians chapter 3. He says this in verse 26, hopefully. It's going to come up. Galatians 3, 26. If, there it is. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Okay? Notice he continues to use this sons of God. And then verse 28, notice what he says. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So if you are a Christian, you have equal access and equal love from God the Father to God the Father. So out in the Roman world, if you are a woman, you are a second-class citizen. 
But what Paul is saying, in Christ, you are equal in value, worth, and love. So anyone who ever tells you that Christianity is a misogynistic, a patriarchal system, they don't understand the Bible. Because there is no other religion that has done more to liberate women than Christianity. So the question is, well, then what does it mean? You say, Pastor, what does it mean to be adopted? A friend of mine just adopted a son. He lives in the panhandle. And he got this notice, and he sent a picture of this notice. And here's what it said, and I can't use the names, but I'm going to just kind of share with you what it says. It says, the male child born on this day in that city is the legal child of the petitioners and their legal heir by law. He is entitled to the rights and privileges and subject to all obligations of a child born to the petitioners. That child shall be given the lawful name of, by which he shall be known hereafter. So there's three things that that were true then and they're true now if you're adopted. Number one, it's inheritance. Inheritance. As a child of God... If you are his child, you are an heir of God. Now, think about this. If you're a a business person and you have a lot of real estate and you make billions of dollars and, and you do it through hard work and determination, that money is yours. But if you have no children, and let's say you go and you adopt a child, what you worked so hard for is now theirs. And they didn't do anything to earn any of that money. That child's inheritance is theirs legally. And they share in that wealth because of virtue of being adopted. So to be in Christ is to be a child of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I, all, probably everyone in this room wished that our parents were billionaires and that we could inherit the money. But if you are a Christian, you have something far greater than being an heir to a billionaire. You have a father who is infinitely worthy. Because here's the question. How do you measure God's worth? You don't measure God's worth by money or by property or or by any material possessions. The, The only way you can actually see God is in his glory. Now, the question is, well, what is glory? Well, it's his weightiness. It's his holiness. It's his awesomeness. It's his supremacy, his majesty, his excellence. And it's those things. Glory is, is the thing that we all long for. We all long to see. You know, we're right now in the middle of the NFL playoffs. And a lot of people, they, they have their teams. And they're excited. They want their teams to win. Why? So that they can share in the glory of their team. We go to movies and we see these great stories, these epic stories. We get uh, so excited about superheroes that come in and save the day. And, and we get excited at the end. Everybody, there's a happy ending and we relish in their glory. We have a society that's enamored with the celebrity. And we attach ourselves and get excited about celebrity or even royalty. And we celebrate little glories that we see on the earth. These little glories. These things that are glorious. But God is infinitely glorious. So if you're a child of God, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that you are going to inherit glory, a glory that you didn't do anything to earn. 
and that none of us deserve, but we're going to experience it like never before. All the joy, all the happiness that, that you have, you, none of us in this room have any categories in our brains to just even to think about whatever, whatever you can think about is glorious. Whatever heaven is like is going to blow your mind. You're going to inherit that. So whatever experience you have here on this earth, either good or bad, will mean nothing compared to what's coming. I want to give you a verse. This should help some of you. The verse is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Notice what Paul says, for these light momentary afflictions, whatever these afflictions you have, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now think about this. If you are a billionaire, if you've got a billion dollars in the bank, we hope you're a tither, right? We do. If you're a billionaire and you lose $5, will you be that worried? No, it's just five bucks. If you're a billionaire and somebody steals five bucks from you, you're not going to be that upset. You have a billion dollars in the bank. Well, what we have in, in heaven is infinitely more valuable than a billion dollars in the bank. So whatever little things that happen to us in these 60, 70, 80, 100 years that we live on this earth pales in comparison to the glory that's coming. You know, I want to go back to the sports analogy. You know, some of the happiest times in a lot of people's lives, and even mine, are, are those moments that you have the day after your team, your favorite team, wins a championship. Some of you, you know, maybe you know uh, those, you know, the Florida Gators when they won their championships or uh, Florida State when they won their championships or Miami a long, long, long time ago when they won their championships. And, and you, you, you remember the day after and, and you walked around and everywhere you walked, you just strutted. You could even strut sitting down. I mean, you were so excited. You wore your team shirt. Anybody that was the opposing fan, you rubbed it in their face. You had so much excitement, so much exuberation. But here's the question. How long did it last? A week? A month? But then what did you keep looking for? Well, now it's next year. All right, we won this year, but it doesn't matter about last year. Let's worry about this year. Didn't last, and you're constantly seeking a glory. And here's the thing, the glory that you shared in earlier, you didn't do anything to participate in. You know, it's like it's amazing when you have conversations, well, man, we, we did a good job tonight. Who's the we? You didn't do anything. You watched the TV. You sat maybe in a certain position hoping that by that your feng shui would somehow create the universe to make sure that the pass actually was caught by the receiver. But you didn't do doodly squat. But yet you're sharing in a glory that you had no part in. And see, all of that just shows us that glory in this earth does not last, but there's a glory that's coming that we didn't do anything to earn, we don't deserve, but yet we get because we're an adopted child of the King. So it's an inheritance, but it's also an identity. What does it mean to be adopted? You remember when, when, when I read that legal document that said, they shall now forever be known as this? When you are adopted, when a baby is adopted, when a child is adopted, that, uh, that, name, that, that name of the child changes. So if you are adopted, your name changes. Your identity changes. What the child was once known as is now changed forever, and the things that used to define you before God changed your life 
are now, when you are in him, are forever changed. You're no longer changed, chained to your old identity. So if you were a liar, if you were a thief, if you were a pervert, if you were abusive or if you were addicted, all of those things, those things that have defined you for years, that if you are in Christ Jesus, when God sees you, he doesn't see those things. You have a new identity. See, when God sees you, he sees the new you in Jesus Christ. You're no longer who you used to be. You are new. You are new. A new identity. Three, intimacy. To be adopted means intimacy. God's disposition towards us is no longer enemy. But in Christ, God loves us as he loves his son Jesus. When God looks at you, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, if you are in Christ, here's what he says. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Because some of you, you believe, well, you know what? I am forgiven, but you're not free. You're still shackled to your old identity. But you've been set free. And you don't have to earn God's acceptance. You don't have to earn God's love. You already have it. If you are in Christ, there is nothing that you can do that would make God love you more. And if you are in Christ, there is nothing you could do that would make God love you less. God loves you as he loves his son, Jesus. If you are a Christian, you can never be more accepted. See, a child has access like no one else. If your child, those of you that are parents, if your child needs you, it doesn't matter when, it doesn't matter where, it doesn't matter what it is, if you're a good parent, you're going to be there. If your child gets sick in the middle of the night and they wake you up, you're going to help them. When, you're, when they're older and they call you on the phone, you're going to answer their call before anyone else. Why? Because you love them. They have complete access to you. That's what it means to be an adopted child of God. You have an inheritance that can never be taken away. You have a new identity that can never be tarnished. And you have an intimacy with God like no one else. We've been adopted. But yet, even though we're adopted, we still act like orphans. See, we have a future that's secure. We have a new identity and a complete access to the Father. But yet, we live our lives as if we have none of it. We live our lives as if we have to continue to earn. We live our lives as if we have to, as if we don't have a Father. But listen, church, every time you say in the Lord's Prayer or in your prayer life, Father, every time you call Him Father, it should remind you of your adoption into His family. J.I. Packer said this. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. Our father. Wow. Second line. In heaven. God has a perspective that is greater than ours. He's not in a galaxy far, far away. 
God is in heaven. You say, well, pastor, where's heaven? You know what my definition of heaven is? Wherever God is. Where's heaven? I don't know. It's wherever God is. God is non-spatial and he's non-temporal. He's not limited by time, nor is he limited by space. He lives in the eternal present. That is that yesterday, today, and the future all look the same to him. He can live above time, but he also can live in time. He can be near and available at any time, yet he has a perspective from the beginning to the end. Psalm 33 says this, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He sees us all. He has perspective. Now listen, just in life, from a distance, you get a perspective of things. Whether it's a distance in time or a distance in proximity to a situation or a physical distance, once you get some perspective, you see things a little clearer. I mean, how many of you have ever looked back at the decisions that you've made in your life when you were younger and you said, you, you said to yourself, man, I was an idiot. Can I get a witness on that one? I mean, you may even have said that 10 minutes ago before you walked in here and said, man, I can't believe I showed up to church today. I'm an idiot. No, I'm just kidding. Can, and, then, and then on the other side of that, how many times... When you look back at what you thought at that time was the worst moment of your life, the the worst time of your life, you look back now and you are thankful you went through it. Now, it's a saying that time heals all wounds. I'm not sure if that's true or not. Jesus heals all wounds. But from a distance, things look a little different. Well, we have a God who sees things from a distance. But he also lives in real time, and he also lives out of time. When Jesus said in verse 6, 8, notice he said this. He said, do not be like them. Now, who are the them? Those are those religious heathens that are trying to earn God's approval and earn God's acceptance by their long prayers and their repetitive language. He says, don't be like them. You don't have to try to please God, for your Father knows what you need. Before you ask him. I would tell all of you. Meditate on that. See God sees what's going on in your life. Now isn't it amazing. There are billions of people on the face of the earth. That God is intimately aware of everything that's going on. In our lives. I mean the number of hairs on our head. And me every day. Less and less and less. But yet he counts them. I think he has one angel specifically set for me. Well he's got one less than he did yesterday. He knows what we need, and He knows what we don't need. He has a better advantage. So when we pray, our Father in heaven, that prayer reorients our view of God and life. When you pray, prayer brings a new perspective because it puts God back into the picture of your life. So that when you are praying, you are talking to a father and you know that he knows what is best. And when you know that he knows what is best, when you talk to him about your needs or your fears or your hopes or your dreams or your concerns or your questions or your perplexities or your sins, it changes how you think. It changes how you live life. Our father in heaven. So because God... He is our Father, and because He is in heaven, we can trust Him. Now, for some of you, that's a struggle. 
because you didn't have a dad. Or you didn't have a good dad. Maybe you had a, an abusive dad. Maybe you had a dad who was never there. And when you hear a sermon that calls God Father, you struggle because you, you have no idea what a loving, caring, trustworthy dad looks like. You can't relate to it. And you know, here's what I found. If you look in history, bad father experiences are one of the big reasons that people reject God. Sigmund Freud said this. He says, nothing destroys someone's faith in God like a bad relationship with their father. Sigmund Freud had a terrible relationship with his father. And he rejected God because of it. Some of the renowned atheists in history like Huxley and Hume and Voltaire, if you read the history of their lives, they had horrible, abusive, and neglected, and neglectful parents. Bad dads. It's been said this, your view of your father is, the, is often the weightiest factor in the development of your faith because we were created for a heavenly father and our earthly fathers were supposed to model for us the faint resemblance of him. Those of you that are men in this room, that are dads in this room, that are fathers in this room, you play a huge role in the faith development of your children. And I'm not saying that mothers are not important. They are hugely important because I think if it wasn't for a lot of godly mothers, we wouldn't have a church. But men, do you realize that your children see you and God has put you in that place so that you point them to Him? Here's what I want to say. Don't let your bad dad keep you from a relationship with the best dad. See, when Jesus taught us to pray, he said that we address God as Father. A Father who truly loves us, cherishes us, who feels every pain we feel even greater than we feel it. A dad who will do whatever it takes to do what's best for you. Hear what God's word says in Isaiah. Isaiah 43. This is a good word. But now thus says the Lord. He who created you, O Jacob. He who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you. Peoples in exchange for your life, fear not, for I am with you. This word ransom, he says, I will give men in return for you. I will pay the price for you. I will pay the price for you to be mine. The question is, what did God the Father give up for you? His Son. Every recorded prayer of Jesus, except one. Jesus calls him Father. 
The only prayer that's recorded in Scripture that Jesus ever prayed to God where He didn't address Him as Father was when Jesus was on the cross. And it's there He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not that He's His enemy. He says, My God. It's obedience. It's love, but not Father. You want to know why? Because in that moment, Jesus Christ, the true Son, was forsaken by the Father so that you and I would never be forsaken. God treated Jesus as we should have been treated so that He, and, or so that we could be treated like Jesus. It didn't come cheap. I want to end with something very theological. There's a great theological movie called Taken. It stars Liam Neeson. And there's actually three Takens, and there's even a TV show. Taken one, two, and three, and the plot is the same. The daughter is taken. She's kidnapped. And Liam Neeson gets her back. And, 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 and Taken one, maybe you've not seen this movie, that's fine. Liam has a scene in which he talks on the phone with the kidnappers. Maybe some of you remember this. Here's what he says. I wish I could do a Liam Neeson accent. But here's what he says. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have is a very particular set of skills Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare to people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that will be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. And you say, where's, where's God in that? Listen, when I saw that, I couldn't help but see God. I said, that's my dad, not Liam Neeson. Talking about God. That God the Father would go to the ends of the earth to get me back. See, I can call him creator because he is. I can call him ruler and judge of all the earth. I can call him glorious, holy, and savior because he's all those things. But the greatest privilege that I have is I can call him daddy because he's my dad. And my hope is that he's your dad. And he'll only be your dad by faith, not by creation, but by adoption, by redemption. God wants to do something this morning in your life. He wants to have a relationship with you. So if you are here and you do not have a relationship with Him, you can have one today. You can trust Him as your Savior. He has done absolutely everything necessary for you to be right with Him. Whatever your needs are, whatever you're going through, you have a Father who cares. Fear not, I am with you. Let's stand. Every head bowed, every eyes closed. Father in heaven, Father in heaven, thank you for being our Father. Thank you for doing whatever it took 
to bring us to you. And God, maybe this morning you have done some amazing things to bring the people in this room so that at this moment, Father, they would trust you as their Savior. So God, I pray that if there's anyone here, and I know that there are, that does not have a relationship with you, and I know that there are, that they would trust you as Savior. That maybe in this moment, they would have the courage to come to you and say, Father, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I've done so much wrong. God, I believe that you sent Jesus, your only son, to die on the cross for my sins. And I believe that he rose from the dead. And I believe, God, that you can save me. So, God, I ask that you save me and forgive me and bring me into your family so that I can be forever yours. Lord, I pray that there would be somebody that would want to pray that prayer today. Something like it. Father, call us to yourself today. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. For more information or how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net.